Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, August 24th, our first weekend of ATP and WTA action in New York, officially in the books. It was a really fun weekend of action. Was it the prettiest tennis? No, I don't think anyone would say that it was, but certainly to see our favorite players back on court competing against one another, it was a thrill for tennis fans across the globe, and we were treated to some really fun results. A lot of of upsets on the women's side, the top two seeds going down. Obviously, we all knew the WTA was going to be wide open, that there were 30-plus players who really could compete for these two titles in New York, but to see the top seeds go down in Weekend 1, that was a result none of us saw coming. And so, of course, we're going to break down those matches, break down some of our favorite matches from the men's side as well, preview all of Day 3's action, and joining me to do just that once again on the podcast you, of course, know him as our Cracked Rackets do everything. A former Denison men's tennis great and a man I affectionately refer as to as James Foster McDonald. Jamie, welcome back to the mini break. How are you doing today? Not too bad. Two days in a row, getting me back into a routine of being on the pod. It's nice. It is absolutely good to have these routines back again. It's funny you mentioned that because, you know, for all of us, right, we all have our different tennis viewing routines. For me, I'm always a guy who goes split screen. I have one match on the left side of my uh, computer, one match on the right side of my computer, and then a third match on the TV screen in front of me. What does your tennis viewing experience look like? And has it been weird? I I will admit it's been hard for me. I'm like, oh my God, I got to follow all of this action at once. When you're watching six matches, are you really watching any match how do you consume all this tennis jamie uh so usually i like my setup on my laptop i go to scoreboard.com and it has just all the scores so when there's 20 matches on right you got to have all of them all the different scores up so i know where to be looking so i've usually got scoreboard.com always up on the laptop on the tv i've got one match of choice and on my phone i've got the other one with audio (laughs) um, in my ear on that one so i've got two matches going and then all the scores so i can swap easily if there's one i need to go to so yeah no that's a veteran play i will say phone tennis that's for me only when i'm desperate if there's like six college tennis matches going on that's when i bring out the phone when i need that third screen working but i can't do phone tennis i just unless i'm on the tennis one app of course because then it's delightful but otherwise, I need that full screen experience. Yeah, but on my phone, that's I, I have the headphones plugged in, so I've got the audio, and it, it captivates me a little bit more. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm used to it. I'm used to it. All the I guess all the days at the office having the phone on. Uh, with tennis have just trained me so well. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, you're much better at sneak watching than I am. I just do it blatantly. No, I, I like that, of course. I mean, for all of us to get to consume tennis for 48 straight hours, I was texting with our friend here at Cracked Rackets, Mark Lucero, and I was like, how closely have you been following? And he's like, well, I haven't been wall-to-wall, but I've watched a lot of matches. I was like, oh. I have been wall-to-wall. I'm like, I'm 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. on the East Coast each and every day. Singles, doubles, you name it, I'll watch it. It's just been so great to get our favorite players back on court. And, of course, we have another fantastic day of tennis slated for us on Day 3. Now, we are going to do a Day 3 preview at the end of this podcast. But if you want to hear our picks for Day 3, you want to get in on the action with our friends at DraftKings, I will highly recommend go listen to our GSP Ace of the Day. I drag my doubles partner, partner in crime, Max Rothman, out of podcast retirement this week as well. Said Maxi, it's tennis, it's gambling. Those are two of your favorite things. Let's do it. And we gave our picks, and it got funky on Monday, folks. Some ridiculous 
ridiculous parlays in play. Of course, we also picked a lot of winners as well in case you want to keep things simple, but highly recommend you go check out that Great Shot Podcast Ace of the Day brought to you by our friends at DraftKings. We're going to be doing that every day throughout this three-week period in New York, so be on the lookout for those. Of course, it's going to be multi-platform. Our YouTube channel, our website, rocking and rolling with preview content as well. Of course, we're going to be doing that here on the podcast throughout the week. So we've got you covered just so that we know, you know, we want all of you fans to be as prepared for New York as possible. That's our goal here at Crack Rackets. So that is what we will be doing. Don't miss out on any of the coverage. Be sure to check out our website, crackrackets.com. Also, if you want a chance to win some free gear, you want the newest Babolat racket, the newest head racket, you want a shot at winning four free tickets to the 2021 Western and Southern Open, and God willing, we'll be able to travel to events once again by Western and Southern 2021, August 2021. Come on, let's get our stuff together, world. Hopefully, we'll be able to do that. You can get yourself a chance to win four free tickets by signing up for the Western and Southern giveaway with our friends at Midwest Sports. Of course, Midwest Sports, for more than 30 years, has served as one of the world's premier tennis equipment suppliers by offering a comprehensive selection of fast shipping tennis supplies that few retailers can match. And you know the deals by now. Tens of thousands of products available for shipping. If you're a guy who, like Jamie Foster McDonald, you want to show off your thighs, you like those short shorts. If you're a guy like me who you're not wearing any sock below the ankle, strings, rackets, grips, shirts, shoes, you name it, they've got it all at MidwestSports.com. You use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off your order free. Two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. And best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. But again, most importantly, you can go win some free gear by signing up for that Midwest Sports Western and Southern Open giveaway. Just go to MidwestSports.com. It's very easy to find the sign-up link from there. And again, you know, while you're there, you might as well buy some supplies. Might as well let them know we sent you. So MidwestSports.com, that promo code is CR15. Jamie, what was the last time you got new tennis shoes? Ooh, right before the high school season. So you know I'm uh, I'm destined to get a new pair here soon, so I got to get my eyes and shop for them. Would you be buying that new Nike Agassi line? I don't know. I don't know if I would. I, I will for sure consider it, uh, but I can't I can't definitively say I would. I don't know. It's it's also one of those things now where I'm kind of washed up, so going out with something flashy, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's similar to our conversation yesterday. Am I good enough to pull it off? I don't know, uh, but it just depends. Did we have that conversation on the podcast or off the podcast? Yeah, it was I, on the pod. Okay, it was on the pod. We already did that. Yeah, you have to just be so good to be wearing clothing like that. So I agree. I don't know if I can do that, particularly I think if you've seen either mine or Jamie's forehand, it's just not nearly you know, not nearly aesthetically appealing enough uh, to be rocking that Nike gear. And yes, Jamie, I'm going to group your forehand with mine in that case because, again, it's the most extreme scenario, I suppose. But MidwestSports.com, of course, ha- will have you looking good. Our friend at Aerobar will have you feeling good, and then you're going to play good. Aerobar, the only tennis-specific energy bar in the business. More potassium than a banana, delicious cinnamon, honey oat, and chocolate chip flavors. And best of all, it comes with a podcast, right? Our Thursday episodes of the mini break, getting to the point with our friends at Aerobar. We focus on the importance of nutrition and fitness in the modern game. You can go get yourself some Aerobars by going to Aerobar.com using our promo code CRACKED15. Uh, but speaking of nutrition, Nutrition and fitness. That seems like a good segue to get into the action we saw, Jamie, on day two. Because again, we saw upsets, and it's been a while, so it was even perhaps more thrilling the fact that we saw the top two seeds in the women's draw, Carolina Pliskova, Sophia Kennan, knocked off by their respective opponents. Both of those matches straight sets it as well. It gets you wondering, you know, particularly for Carolina Pliskova, given she hasn't played that many matches, if any, over the past five and a half months, you know, how was her fitness? How match tough was she heading into this one? On the flip side, the match that I want to start with, Sophia Kennan dropping a decision to Alize Cornet, 6-1-7-6. What's so surprising about that decision, Jamie, even before we get into the details of Cornet's 1-6 and six win, is the fact that Sophia Kennan did play a lot of tennis during the exhibition period. Obviously, she was arguably the top, if not the top, the second best player throughout the world team tennis season. We got to see her play a couple of other exos as well. I believe she played the event down in Charleston. 
And yet you look at this match, and if you watched it, she just came out so flat. Yeah, this was a disappointing result. Um, and, and like you said, we'll get into it because there were some, there were certainly some ups and downs and moments where you saw it, right? But uh, no, generally speaking, this was just not a good result. And as you mentioned, not what we expected, especially what we we saw given um, before coronavirus hit the beginning of 2020 and during some of the exhibition season. You're right. Um, so, yeah, not a good result from her. Probably good we didn't end up uh, having to put some money down on her, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, she was someone we had talked about off camera again of, you know, I think she was plus like 1,200 to win the U.S. Open. You think, okay, you play this U.S. Open 12 times given how good Sophia Kennan looked in World Team Tennis, given, as you mentioned, she not only won the Australian Open earlier this year, but she also, you know, went to Dubai, I believe she, uh, or not Dubai, excuse me, she won. What what other title did she win this year? I thought there was an indoor title she won right before play stopped in Lyon. That is, in fact, what she did win. Uh, Yeah, she was looking great on the hard courts, and in this match, I mean, you look at it right off the bat, two numbers stick out to me. One for Sophia Kennan. She only made 54% of her first serves in set number one. That's not great. But the big thing that stands out to me, you watch Sophia Kennan play, the thing she always does so well is take control of the points, and that usually starts for her with the return of serve. Now, Alize Cornet in this match, and Cornet had a really good win against McNally in round one, so she was certainly matched up. She just tracked down every extra ball in this match, gave Kennan a chance to, you know, beat herself, but Cornet only made 47% of her first serves in that first set, and with all due respect to Alize Cornet, it's not like her serve was blowing Sophia Kennan off the court, and yet in that first set, Alize Cornet, 22 of 34 overall on service points, 69% on the first serve, 61% on the second serve for Sophia Kennan. I mean, she was, what, 7 of 13, I think, on first serve points. She was uh, 1 of 6 on on second serve points in that first set. It was just, it, she just kept missing. Like, I don't know what else to say other than the unforced errors just kept piling up. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And, and you knowing my game, this one was painful to watch because <laughs> it, it was like Cornet was just sitting there like, okay, Kenan, go ahead and miss. And she did, and she did, and she did, and she did. Um, and, you know, you, you talk about set one. It took a long time for that bleeding to stop because Kenan, you know, we know what she's going to do, right? She's going to keep swinging. And, you know, usually the missing, it go, it comes and then it goes, right? Um, and this one, I mean, it was just going on for so long where she just kept missing balls. It didn't matter. It could be sitting forehands, which there's a blatant one we'll get to later. That's a bit of foreshadowing. Um, and then just returns. She just could not get the ball in play. Yeah, no, I mean, for Sophia Kennan, someone who prides herself on just playing, you know, efficient, high-percentage tennis, yeah, she moves the ball around the court. Yeah, she's going to take her chances, you know, she's going to go cross-court, she's going to hit the drop-shot-lop combo. She's going to try things. When I say she plays high-percentage, efficient tennis, that's not to say she's not aggressive, but usually she does give herself margin for error. Usually she's the one who's, you know— uh putting that extra ball in play or just, you know, asking that question of your opponent, hey, do you think you can hit this tough approach? Because I don't think you can. For Alizé Cornet, it was even more basic than that, in my opinion. A lot of forehand slices that, as you mentioned, Jamie, probably made you proud from Cornet. She just kept making that extra ball. And that's not to say she didn't do a good job of changing direction, because she did. She did move that ball across court. She played short angles. She played high topspin over the net just to keep Kennan uncomfortable from getting in a rhythm, but yeah, I mean, up until it was 6-1-5-2, Sophia Kennan just did not have much working for her. Now, the flip side to that, Alize Cornet, uh, you know, has a couple of match points along the way, but uh, Sophia Kennan able to fight off those match points, get it back to 5-all. They end up going to a breaker. Sophia Kennan gets a set point. I think she had two set points up 6-4 on that second one. She just has a forehand sitting approach, just begging to be put away that she ends up hitting in the net. Now, she misses that. She ends up losing the breaker, I believe, 8-6, 2 corner, or 9-7, excuse me. And yet, Jamie, 
slightly encouraged by that ending, right? Because nothing was working for Sophia Kennan, and I spent a week with on the call with Luke Jensen, who obviously coached the New York Empire Grand Slam champion, and he kept saying to me, when a player's down that badly, Alex, what I always want to see as a coach is I want to watch them lose differently. I want to watch them try different things. I want to watch them persevere. How are they competing in these moments? Sophia Kennan down 6-1-5-2, that competitive instinct, that switch flipped. And I think that's really encouraging. And yeah, she played like garbage. There's no denying that. And I don't say that to be slanderous to Sophia Kennan. It's to say we know how good she is or she's capable of playing when she plays her best stuff. But I'm encouraged by the way she competed. It was an ugly performance from a tennis perspective. But this doesn't dampen my feelings about her heading into the U.S. Open. What are your thoughts on the Kennan side of this equation? Yeah, so I mean, you, you do like to see the fact that she didn't just roll over and lose this one and two because that's what it looked like was going to happen. Um, literally all the way up until she saves that match point, right? Um, the ending of this, which is a bit sad, tells me that it's like, hey, Kenan, if you would have just made Cornet actually close out points throughout the entire match, you probably would have won this because as soon as things got down to the wire, you know, Cornet, it's not like she was doing anything spectacular, right? For most of this match, she was waiting for Kennan to miss, and it worked. Um, so, you, like you mentioned, that sitting forehand I was referencing earlier, I can't. I, I believe she got up and missed it long. I, I, I think is what happened because she had that sitter right that goes down. the Yeah, line. she overcooked it. I, yeah. I might have said net. You're right. Yeah. She overcooked. It. She just misses it barely long down the line. But I mean, either way, it, it really just illustrates what was going on in this match because Kennan put herself in positions to win and if she was on her A game I mean I think she would have won this match really comfortably um, it's just the fact that she wasn't and Cornet was allowed to just sit at the back make balls um, you saw her get really really tight toward the end as Kennan made this more of a real contest right Cornet started doing what we all know her for she was whining to her box she was getting incredibly antsy um and ultimately she gets through the match so good for her for persevering but yeah overall from kenan there are some positives pretty much all the positives are basically the way she fought when she was really really against the wall um so you just got to hope that the next time you know when we're seeing her at the u.s open um she doesn't have a match like this or at the very least she's able to turn it around a bit earlier yeah i mean For the first hour of this match, she was just so impatient, and that's just not Sophia Kennan. And that's something that you could see the match instincts clicked in after an hour. And it's just like, okay, yeah, you were a little bit rusty. But I agree with you. I'm encouraged by that. I also think if you haven't played, although she has played competitive tennis, that's why this is so confusing. Yeah, she I has suppose. played a decent amount. Um, but, you know, 5 of 20 on second serve points, that's just not going to cut it. 19 of 36 on first serve points, again, that's just not going to be good enough. The serve something she's clearly going to be working on this next week before the U.S. Open starts. That being said, I still feel pretty good about Sophia Kennan heading into the U.S. Open. I will be shocked if she makes anything less than the second week. Yep, I think that's fair. Yeah. On the flip side, to Alizé Cournet, you're right. It was it, She almost lost it at the end, but now for her, two really good wins this week over McNally and over uh, now Sophia Kennan. She's got to be feeling pretty good heading into this one right now in day five, I believe. Uh, she's got another fun match here. Let me see who she plays. Or actually, she's got the day off because she already played her second round match, but that's a really good result for Alizé Cournet. Yeah. I mean, you got to think this has got to give her some confidence, especially somebody like Cournet who how do I say this, isn't always the most relevant when we're talking about, you know, the WTA, but she's at, what, like 60 right now, obviously a veteran of the tour, knows how to get matches won, knows how to make people nervous, Um, and honestly, her best results come exactly like this when, you know, people are simply missing shots, and she's allowed to play her game of just sitting at the back and and making things um, happen, so good win for her, as you said, she's got some rest, and then uh, third round coming up for her next yeah, so really good result there uh, for Alize Cornet. Obviously, it was surprising to see Sophia Kennan go down. Now, we also saw the top seed on the women's draw, in the women's draw go down, but we're going to hold that match for a second because I thought Kennan Cornet, most interesting match on the women's side. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired styles 
style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. On the men's side, the match of the day, I think unequivocally, goes to the battle we saw between Dan Evans and Andre Rublev. And you look in that match, that was a rematch of a really tricky battle we saw earlier in the year in Dubai before play stopped. Dan Evans able to, you know, sort of halt the momentum of Andre Rublev, who opened up 2020 with two straight titles, looked so good heading into the Australian Open, obviously lost his match there to Alex Zverev in this one. You know, he was a rematch with Dan Evans, and we say it for Andre Rublev. You know he's going to see a brick wall. He's going to try and run through it head first. He's just going to keep swinging and swinging and swinging. But something he's always struggled with is dealing with junk. You know, he's not the most natural of athletes. He's a guy who wants a ball in his strike zone. He doesn't want to be bending low, playing at weird angles, being in weird positions on the court. So this is always going to be a fantastic contrast of styles. And it was a really high level of tennis. Dan Evans in the end getting a three-set win over Andre Rublev, 7-5-3-6-6-2. Jamie, your initial reaction to this result? Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was a hell of a match. I think for me, when I always see the Evans and Rublev, you know, at least in my head, I think of Rublev as the favorite here, not just because of rankings, but just from the talent we've seen displayed from him. But, you know, the more you think about it, the more you realize that this is a great matchup for Dan Evans um, for a couple of reasons. You just mentioned one of them, the fact that Rublev doesn't like handling um, some of that junk, some of the things that Evans can do to throw off your rhythm. And sure, that absolutely affects a lot of players, but especially somebody like Rublev who just wants to sit and, and uh, whack baseline shots all day. Um, I think that does a lot. And then also, I think one thing that Dan Evans likes here is he's not going to get caught in a lot of just grueling points where, not necessarily where Rublev is just, you know, hitting the ball 90 miles an hour every time. But some of the times you see Dan Evans get messed up as somebody who's just going to grind you out, hit high heavy balls to that backhand of his, really try to make him play back from the baseline. Rublev's not going to do that because of how aggressive he is. He hits with so much pace, um, and Dan Evans can, can do some tricky things off of those uh, aggressive balls. So it's a good matchup for him, um, but nonetheless, in the context of this match specifically, just really entertaining from start to finish. Yeah, look, I, I think it's not a stretch. It's not hyperbole to say Dan Evans clearly started 2020 playing the best tennis of his career, and he's continued that momentum into this portion of the season. And you see for Dan Evans now in the live rankings again with this win, he's back up to number 29. He reached a career high of number 28 earlier this year. Dan Evans, 30 years old, but we all know his story suspended for uh, an off-court incident. Now back, but you know, it, health is and talent have never been an issue for him. It's just simply been being on court and staying focused. And in this latter part of his career, this late stage, he has shown the ability to do that. I thought Dan Evans played a really clean match all around the board. And you look at some of his stats, 28 winners against 20 unforced errors, did such a disciplined job, as you mentioned, of just keeping that slice return, you know, getting the point back to neutral. He did such a good job of keeping that slice low and just getting Rublev uncomfortable, taking his backhand down the line and getting Rublev stretched to the outer thirds, opening up court for himself. Now, only 11 of 17 at the net, but I still think he did a really good job of taking time away. You know, that 11 of 17 at the net doesn't include all of the forced errors of, okay, Dan Evans is moving forward, but Andre Rublev misses that first uh, first mm-hmm. passing shot. And so, yep. you know, it's technically not a net point for Dan Evans. I thought he did better than the the stats reflect there. And again, you know, only uh, 28 for uh, twenty-eight to 20 winner to unforced error ratio, uh, seven backhand winners to 11 unforced errors. That's about as good as you're going to get when you're playing someone who can attack with your one-handed backhand the way that Andre Rublev can with his forehand. And so, yeah, for Dan Evans, it was just a clean all-around performance. Again, you sort of look at just the superficial stats for Evans in this match. 49% of his first serves, that's not great. But, you know, 27 of 
42 on first serve points one, 22 of 44 on second serve points one. I, I just thought he did he did enough to you know make that extra ball, make Andre Rublev uncomfortable, and he looked really sound physically, competed well. I thought you know in terms of lack of rust, in terms of players who most look similar to the way they did before play stopped, Dan Evans probably wins that category for me in weekend number one. Yeah, he's right up there. As you mentioned, he picked it up right where he left it off. I, I want to go back to those <clears throat> those serving percentages real quick and, and those statistics because I think it's interesting. When you, when you look at it just like this, it really doesn't look very impressive. You mentioned the 49% off of first serve, 64% on first serve points one. That's just not that great, um, especially to beat somebody like Rublev. But, you know, he wins half of his second serve points I mean, still not the cleanest serving performance, but able to get it done. And I think a lot of it is simply what you mentioned before, the fact that, you know, there's always an element of pressure when you're playing against Dan Evans. You know that there's a threat of something. You know, he's going to attack somehow, whether it's a net point, whether he actually gets there or you miss the pass. There's always some sort of pressure that he's going to put on you. And I think I think that just really affected Rublev in this match. Yeah, and I've, you've talked to enough players in the correct interviews. You know, you ask, what's your favorite stroke? What's the stroke you wish you could take from any other player? And more than enough, you know, more than just a small group of people have said to me, Alex, the, the shot I would take is the Roger Federer slice backhand return because the way he's able to take that one-handed backhand slice return and put a point at neutral, do you know how difficult that shot is to execute? To which I say, yes, I do know how difficult that shot is to execute, and I respect it immensely. If Roger Federer's number one at that slice uh, backhand return. Dan Evans is probably number two in my book in the men's game. His ability to use that slice return, get the point back to neutral, it was really impressive. It's why he held Andre Rublev to 14 of 41 on second serve points. It's how he was able to take control of points despite Rublev just slugging away from the baseline. Um, but yeah, it, it was a really good, pers- you know, Evans just did an, he was in every point. There was never a point where he just got blown out of the water. He was always competitive. And in a match like this, five-plus-month hiatus, that's your game plan going in. That's what you want to see. If you're the coach of Dan Evans, you're very encouraged with that performance. Now, I will also say there was a point during the second set where I heard Dan Evans drop just a beautiful F-bomb to his coach. And that's another one of those perks of having the, the courts mic'd up, but there's no fan noise pollution. You can hear exactly what the players are chirping at their box and boy did he drop an f-bomb it was delightful now you know but he he did enough to persevere and stay in this now on the flip side of that let's talk Andre Rublev because I think if you are a Cracked Rackets fan you have heard me say this before I am very encouraged by Andre Rublev's upside I've said this little fact a million times but if you go and watch Andre Rublev in person you listen to the sound his forehand makes when it connects with a ball it's different than anything else you'll hear in the tennis world. It's a different sound than Roger makes, than Delpo makes. The only person who makes a similar sound is the forehand of Felix Ogier Aliasim. These young guys can just hit a ball in ways, I'm telling you folks, we've never seen before. Andre Rublev did a lot of that in this match, and I actually thought he played a really patient match, and the stats reflect that. 36 winners against 18 unforced errors, but the two things that continue to be problems for him, and they're the two things that will just need to improve for him to take that next jump to where I think we all agree he's a top 10 talent, but is he a potential Grand Slam champion? And, you know, you just can't go 14 of 41 on your second serve points, particularly when you know it exactly what Dan Evans is trying to do with his uh, second serve backhand return, which is just slice the ball, get the point back to neutral. The other thing, it says Rublev is 15 of 20 at the net in this match, and in theory, that sounds really good. He could have been at the net 45, 50 times in this match. He, like, for someone who hits the forehand as hard as Andre Rublev does, who opens up the court as well as they do, someone's got to teach this guy to hit a high floating volley. Someone's got to teach this guy how to hit an overhead. And I'm not saying he, you know, not teach him because obviously he understands how to do it. You don't get this good in the world without doing that. But someone's just got to convince him, hey, Andre, you may lose match one. 
you may lose match two. You may even lose match three. But three years from now, when it's match 35, 36, 37 of you doing that, you're going to win so many matches because of how how much space you can create from your, for yourself with the forehand, how much time you can take away from your opponent by taking that ball early, knocking it out of the air. Total points won in this match, JB, 94 for Rublev, 92 for Evans. I really thought Andre Rublev not only could have won this match, but honestly, I thought he played a good match. He did play a good match. It's it's interesting when you talk about his net play. It's something that, uh, you know, look, you can see he has been trying to work on it, especially in the last couple of years, because it's something that's been identified as a weak point. And so I think think it'll continue to get better. I think one thing that sometimes gets him in trouble as well is, you know, obviously, look, when he's especially, let's talk about the forehand in particular— when he's hitting the forehand and he's hitting it to the outer thirds of the court, I mean, look, it doesn't, most of the time, or at least a lot of the time, it doesn't even matter if he's coming in or not because it's such a big shot. Where he sometimes gets into trouble, and you saw Evans hit a couple of these passes because he had the time, Rublev will try to approach, but he hits the ball so hard, he's, I mean, look, he's not even close to in the net by the time his opponent's hitting the ball because there's no time for him to get in, right? And so that sometimes actually hurts him. It's like, yes, you have such a big stroke, but if the guy on the other side of the net connects with a pass, you're not able to close fast enough because you're not even close to the net first. So it's an interesting one for him. You know, when he uses his angles to approach, whole different story, right? If he rips a huge inside out and then covers the net from there, you know, who knows if the ball's even coming back. But for those straight-up approaches, especially when he's going down the line, you saw it a couple times where he's trying to attack the Evans backhand. You know, he's not even close to the net by the time Evans is hitting a pass, and, and it worked for Evans sometimes. So it's it's something that he's got to be a little bit more cognizant of because he's just giving his opponents too much time on that approach. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. And I'm glad you mentioned it like that. You can see Andre Rublev, you can see, you know, the calculator in his mind making the calculations and thinking, oh, I should move in here. Like, everything I did, I hit that perfect inside-in forehand. And by the way, his inside-in forehand, yeah, his inside-out, his ability to find forehands in in general is really special. His inside-in forehand is probably his signature finishing shot when he can open you up inside-out, inside-out, and then just laser that ball Uh, inside-in. It's a really effective combo, and yet, that's the ball you gotta move in on, right? Because you have your opponent moving from the ad side to the deuce side uh, to hit that down the line ball, take time away, knock that off with a volley, and just so many times you can see him, oh, I should move forward, and then he doesn't. And that's not going to be news to him. This isn't a revelation. I'm just saying that's the difference. He learns how to knock off volleys. He's a top 10 player overall, a top 5 player on hard courts. It becomes that much more dangerous for him. And then on the flip side, I mean, the second serve percentage, I think part of that's a a fact of his first step still isn't elite, and so Dan Evans was able to get him stretched, get get him uncomfortable. There are a lot of times that the, you know, Dan Evans just changed directions spontaneously, and, you know, Rublev did sometimes track down that ball, but it would be a forehand slice, and now Dan Evans is in control. So it's a lot of the same thing still for Andre Rublev. The second serve needs to get a little bit better. He needs to get more comfortable volleying, uh, but Overall, you know, structurally, fundamentally, I thought there's a lot to be encouraged by this Rublev performance. Yeah, you would have loved to have seen him bounce back after losing to Evans earlier in the year and winning this one. But again, 94 total points to 92 for Evans. It was an either-or battle. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm still really hopeful about him going into the true New York U.S. Open. (laughs) <laughs> no, I completely agree with you there. He is going to be someone to watch. Dan Evans, by the way, also. I don't, like... It really obviously depends on the draw, but if it's like, and I keep using him as an example just because he's had a not the best past 18 months, but if it's Dan Evans versus Karen Hatchinov in round three, who are you leaning towards? I mean, we can cover it briefly. Hatchinov has looked good, but Evans has looked better, truthfully. Yeah. I mean, I, granted, put 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 Hatchinov up against Rublev, I don't think he wins that. Um, so that, that kind of tells me something there. Granted, we just talked about how much of a stylistic difference there is. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, you mentioned Hatchinov. We won't get into it for with crazy length here. But it'll be interesting to see how he does moving through this draw because I, I would like to see him challenged a little more. I, I think he needs a, a better challenge um, to have success in the U.S. Open. 
that's yeah, my no, take right now. When you're playing the boob <laughs> round one, you're just not gonna. That's not a real match. You're like yeah. hitting three points max per or three balls max per point. So yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. Uh, it's gonna be really interesting to see him tested today against Paulo Carreno Busta. We'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, I texted you as well. Like da- David Goffin looked pretty. Oh, we'll get into that actually in a second. But yeah, Dan Evans. The point is. He looks, uh, he looks really good, and he's continued his mm-hmm. momentum, continued his form here into the resumption of play in 2020. And, you know, we talk about the uncertainty for all of these seats, right? Dan Evans versus a Karen Hatchinov versus a David Goffin versus all of these different names. Well, you like to think when a player is the top seed in a tournament, you can put a little bit more stock in them. That wasn't the case yesterday. We already talked about it on the women's side. Sophia Kennan went down in her first round match in straight sets. The same happened to number one seeded Karolina Pliskova, a straight set loser in her first round match. That sounds rude. A straight set round defeat. She's not a loser. She was just defeated in her first round match by Veronica Kudermatova. Uh, Kudermatova, a 7-5, 6-4 winner in this match. I mean, Jamie, what was interesting, Pliskova raced out to a break lead in set number one. She seemed to just have enough power, be able to stretch Kudermatova to the outer thirds in the court that it just looked like it was going to be a another comfortable performance, and yet for Veronica Kudermatova in this match, I mean, it was a really impressive display of tennis. Yeah, and you, you just you just touched on it there. The momentum of this match was really odd because Plushkova comes out, you know, swinging as we expect, and it was working, and you're like, okay, well, this looks like it'll be a pretty routine win for the one seed. Um, and then just sort of, as Matt Stokoyak would say, a head-scratcher. is like, alright, so what <laughs> happened from there? Um, and you know, throughout this match, you saw a lot of things. Plushkova, you know, look, she's never going to have the lowest unforced air count. That's just not her game. Um, but, man, did she miss a lot of balls at certain points. And, and grant, look, there were a lot of things you could talk about in this match. But if you're watching it, you know, even if you go through the highlights or you watched the whole match, you'll notice so many of the points looked exactly the same. Like, how many slaps down the middle third of the court happened in this match? Uh, it was just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, look, for Veronica Kudermatova and, I mean, sorry, for Karolina Pliskova, you know what you're going to expect, yeah. you know? And is she the best mover to the outer thirds? No, she's not. But if you put a ball in the center, it doesn't matter how much pace, how much depth, she's going to slap it right back at you, and it's probably going to be even more powerful. And for Karolina Pliskova, you know, she is, what, 28 years old? It continues to be a question. She's been one of the most talented players in the women's game for the past five years, and yet she hasn't been able to get over that hump at the grand slams you know a hard court slam in particular is an event you would favor her at you would think she can succeed in and certainly she's had a lot of success in that but for Kudermatova it was the way she took balls early right the way she actually got uh, Pliskova stretched to the outer third, the way she played short angles, the way she, you know, Pliskova was slapping down the the center. Kudermatova got to a certain point where she was like, you know what? I'm going to do that right back at you. And mm-hmm. good luck to you, Pliskova, because I'm feeling it today. I just thought for Kudermatova, it was just a really quality performance from the baseline. And, you know, she tracked down that extra ball as well. She made Pliskova uncomfortable. What's so crazy for Veronica Kudermatova, 23-year-old Russian, I mean, she is is already at a, you know, a top 50 in her career. Now she makes her ascension working her way up the WTA rankings. It's just another 25 and under player on the WTA tour with just loads of talent. I'm not saying grand slam winning talent because, uh, you know, there are so many other talented young players who I probably like a little bit better. But if I told you Kudermatova plays like this, rips her way to the second week of the U.S. Open, you're like, sure. I mean, you just have to put her on the list now, right, of the 50 women who could make the round of 16 at the U.S. Open. Yeah, exactly. That's the crazy part about the WTA right now. You, you mentioned adding to the list. Um, and, and it is such a long list at this point that it, it just makes it – I mean, look, it makes it exciting when you get into a draw because you're like, well, who knows what the hell is going to happen. But yeah. <clears throat> you see all of this talent, like you mentioned, young talent that's going to be around the tour for a long time. And um, at this reason, I mean, at this point – we have no reason to think that that sort of momentum is not going to continue. So then it becomes the question of, okay, are you just going to be a young talent that kind of flames out? Or are you going to be a young talent who really turns into something on the tour and not get eclipsed by the younger ones coming up enough? So it's, it's very interesting. Wins like this have definitely got to put her, you know, higher in the list. I'll say that. 
Yeah, and I mean, the thing she did so well is the way she competed, she knew I have to take the ball early. I have to take control of points because if I let Pliskova move me around the court, I'm going to be down a break like I was in the first set. I'm going to lose this match quickly for Kunamratova that she held Pliskova to 11 of 36 on second serve points, that she created 13 break chances for herself versus Pliskova, who only uh, created two. I mean, just across the board, it was a dominant performance for Kudamatova, 86 to 74 in, ter- in terms of total points One, She did a great job, again, just keeping Pliskova out of rhythm, not letting Pliskova be the one to dictate. Uh, let's look at the flip side real quick, because obviously Karolina Pliskova, if you want a short list of WTA favorites heading into the U.S. Open, in theory, you would have put her at the top, and yet it's an ugly first result for her. It's been a long layoff. Your thoughts on the Pliskova performance and, you know, how you're feeling about her after a quick, you know, a quick exit here at the Western and Southern. Yeah, so, I mean, look, whenever whenever it's these top seeds, obviously, ideal world, you want them, or at least for them, if you're rooting for them, you want them to have a good lead-up tournament, but the lead-up tournaments, in my mind, are always less important for those people who are way more established and higher ranked. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to brush off as a, a, hey, it is what it is, as opposed to somebody where it's like, oh, whoa, we need a good lead up result. You know, if you're, if you're, you know, 34 in the world, that's a lot more important to have a really good Western and Southern to get a couple of nice matches under your belt, to have that confidence, have that momentum, you know, at the point at which you're the one seed here or three in the world or whatever you are, it's a lot less important. So Yes, it doesn't make me feel as good about her for the U.S. Open, but at the same time, it doesn't take that much away because we know the level that she can play at, especially in the slams. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. And so it, we'll see. It, it's always so tough. Again, I'm, I'm trying my best not to overreact to this one match sample size, but this is the first data we've had in five and a half months. I don't know how I'm not going to overreact. Concerning, but not too concerned. I agree with you. More than anything, just impressed with Kudermatova, who gets, again, probably, arguably, the biggest singles win of her young career. And so, you know, certainly when you look at her now, you have to feel encouraged heading into the U.S. Open. I will say, actually, it's her third top 10 win of her career. She beat both Benchich and Svitolina towards the end of last season. Obviously, now the win over Pliskova. So, again, under 25-year-old players, you want to throw her on a list with Jill Teichman, with all of these others, you know, Marie Buzkova's of the world. She belongs there. So, really nice win for Veronica Kudermatova. And we've talked about how many talented young women there are right now in the WTA game. Certainly, one of the young, talented players on the ATP side who so many had such high potential for and I'm not saying they don't anymore but you know if I asked you four years ago Jamie who are the young men on tour you could see someday as Grand Slam champions one of your first three answers without question would have been Borna Chorich and obviously yeah. the past three years since then have not gone exactly how Borna wanted yes there have been pockets of brilliance but you know between those pockets of brilliance many nagging injuries that have kept him off the court struggles with form when he's returned from those injuries as well. It's been a tricky time for Borna Chorich, and this is, again, not to diminish him as a player, but anytime you go from a Nike athlete to an Asics athlete, with all due respect, that's just, that's reflective of that change in the perception about you. And for Borna Chorich, you know, he had started to play better tennis. He looked good, got a big win during the EXO series, and, you know, was starting to look healthy towards the beginning of this season. But Really tricky first round matchup or second round matchup for him, excuse me, as he took on number seven seed David Goffin. And David Goffin's another one of those guys. He's what, 28 years old right now, 27 years old, no, 29 years old, excuse me, number 10 in the world. I talked about all of these stats I've run over at the big seven hardcourt events over the past five years. He's been one of the top 12 players in the world on hardcourts over the past five years. I don't think that's going to surprise anyone, but we're all wondering. What is David Goffin's upside? He's 29 years old, defending finalist at this Western and Southern Open, but we still have yet to see him make that semifinal, that final run at a Grand Slam. And if you haven't done it by 29, we're all wondering if you're still going to be able to do it. Well, he kicked off his restart of this 2020 season really well. A 7-6-6-4 win over Borna Chorich. That's a match that saw him hit 20 winners, 15 unforced errors. I thought he just played a really clean match in this one Jamie yeah he did um and it's funny too you look at the head-to-head of these two guys and Goffin has just wiped him out for years now 
Um, I think their first tour level match was in 2014, and since then he hasn't lost one. Five and zero against Chorich, and so he's clearly got his number here. It's it's been a long time since they've had a tour level head to head. I believe it's been a few years, so you think maybe Chorich um, would potentially be able to rewrite the script on this one, but Gofen. Just really solid. I mean, Chorich did get that break, um, and you thought maybe he was going to be able to hold on to that, at least make this a three-set contest. But, I mean, look, this is what we've come to know from David Goffin. You know, he's, he's not going to be the most overpowering player who's going to do the most spectacular things, but my goodness, is he solid. Um, and so he was able to right the ship in that first set, get things where they need to go, and uh, look, the backhand, we can talk about the backhand. David Goffin's forehand looked really really good and you saw it in a lot of different ways not only was it controlling points it was keeping him in points um, he was able to get out of some rallies with some big forehands down the line just a really solid uh, performance particularly on the forehand win from, wing from David Goffin yeah I just think he does everything well in this match I, I mentioned it he's just such a high floor player 20 winners yeah. 15 unforced errors moved well around the court you know responded well to everything George wanted to do made that extra ball to ask that question of George of hey you want to move forward you want to hit an approach go for it but it's going to be tricky for you and you know George in this match I think you can tell 18 winners he was able to play a little bit of offense but 25 unforced errors 14 of those coming on, 14 of those coming on his his forehand wing now for Gofen, you would like to see that 54% first serve uh, first serve percentage go up. But how are you using your first serve is just as important as are, are you making it. And for Gofen in this match, 27 of 37 on those first serve points, 18 of 31. He faced four break points but created seven for himself. Again, uh, got that additional break he needed in the second set to pull away from Borna Chorch. That was the only break of serve in set number two. It was just a really high quality match and I've said this before on these podcasts right now given how the lack of you know match toughness for so many of these players I favor the guys who you know have the big weapon who can make things easy for themselves well if David Goffin is going to look like this he's going to move this well he's going to look this comfortable on the court I need to reevaluate that stance or make an exception for him because I just thought he played a really clean match in this one yeah, and I think, look, another thing, too, the, the percentages don't necessarily reflect it, but, you know, when the, uh, look, when the most pressure was on, David Goffin's serve also looked very good. He got yes. a lot more free points, at least in the big moments, with his first serve, which, look, he's not going to be bombing 140, but, man, he, I mean, he hit some phenomenal aces and service winners at 114, 115 miles an hour. Um, so he was incredibly effective with that first serve in particular when he needed to be. He was solid enough on the second serve to at least get the big points. Um, I, like, he's a guy who I look for, especially some of the big names are going to be out of the U.S. Open draw. Look, I'm not saying that David Goffin is suddenly my favorite to win the U.S. Open after a match like this. Um, but he's somebody you've always got to consider, especially going into the second week, maybe a couple rounds all the way um, to when there's only a few guys left because he is just so, so solid. And yeah, maybe when he runs up against somebody like a Djokovic, it's all trouble for him because in a lot of ways, somebody like a Djokovic is just a better version of him. But until that time when he's playing the Choriches of the world, you know, you can expect to see really great results from him. Yeah, I think that's completely fair. And, you know, on the flip side of that for Borna Chorch in this match, you know, Chorch went down an early two-love lead in set number one, could have, you know, folded, could have not competed, but he, he he competed really well in this match. And, you know, he was up a break, I think, in that first set, up 4-3. Gofen was able to get that break back, obviously, and then only the one break of serve in that second set. But, the problem when I watch Borna Chorch, and again, we can go through this quickly and get to the rest of the day's results, but I just see a player who's a little bit lost out there, who has a lot yeah. of skills at his disposal, but still doesn't know exactly what he wants to do with them. I mentioned the forehand, eight winners against 14 unforced errors. He just doesn't need to be that aggressive with, or just that, I suppose, sporadic with his forehand. He can give himself a little bit more margin. Now, that backswing on the forehand is always going to be big, and I think at this point, in his you know career probably not going to make too many more structural changes but yeah. he's a good mover he's a good he's got you know really proficient backhand 
And yet sometimes he'll be six feet behind the baseline and he'll just try and slap a forehand. And you're like, what are you doing there, Borna? That's just a bad decision. And so it's really just, again, it's the decision-making I continue to question for Borna Chorich. It's just he looks a little lost sometimes. A guy who still has a ton of skills but is still trying to find out exactly how he wants to play. And, and you know, it's funny. That sort of, we'll call it, this seems unfair, identity crisis. But I'm going to be dramatic and label it that. But look, you mentioned it. Even a few years ago when we were talking about Borna Chorich, you know, everybody was talking about him because he had all of this talent. But one thing that I know for a fact that you and I and probably others talked about on these pods is like, okay, what's Chorich going to be like as a player? Because he's got all of these tools. We've seen him being rock solid. We've seen him being athletic. But that in and of itself, that doesn't produce or make you a champion. Right. Um, And so sort of that question mark lingering around his game. What's he going to do? What's he going to play like? To me, it's still there. And honestly, it's probably even less solidified at this point. Right. I mean, you you saw even a couple of years ago, when was it that he had that great win over uh, Fed in the finals? Um, At what? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so at that point, you figure like, okay, here, George, here he comes. But now it seems like he's kind of regressed and he's in this same weird spot. What do you think about this comparison? when everybody was sort of wondering about what Dimitrov was going to be, because Dimitrov, also one of these guys, incredibly athletic, sometimes, as I would describe him, as needlessly aggressive, just hitting balls like, what are you doing? But then also sometimes trapped in the Monfils zone where he's 20 feet behind the baseline just looping balls and being athletic because he can. Do you see any of that similarity there? Uh, I mean, for Borda Church, it's so tough, right, because... Like, the counter is, and I know this isn't what you asked, but Emilo Sreonich, who knows exactly what he wants to do on the court. And he's just so comfortable in that. And it's just like, I'm hitting big serves. I'm hitting big forehands. I'm moving in. If I lose today, that's fine. But I'm playing my tennis, and I'm playing on my terms. David Goffin's a guy who's malleable, right? He can read. He can respond. He can do a little bit more dictating if the opponent he's playing, you know, merits that. He's also going to be able to play a little bit of defense, I think for George, for so long, he was told, you've got the defensive skills. Now you need to work on being aggressive. I just think sometimes you just need to double down on the things you are best at. And what Borna George is best at is just being the best athlete on the court. It's just moving to that extra ball, using his athleticism to be able to generate that passing shot when he's, you know, four or five, six feet behind the baseline. It's just so tough, though, because at the same time, is that really how you want to make your living at a a tennis player? Don't you want to be able to play inside the baseline, be the one dictating terms, using your serve as a weapon? I don't know. It's it's really tough. It's it's a really tough question to ask. Yeah, no, it is, and and I think you know. Hopefully, he'll begin to figure it out more and more, and um, it's it's just it's kind of hard. It's hard to watch sometimes because he has the weapons, as you mentioned, he has the athleticism and you don't want to see a player be crippled because they have so many positives, but you're right. At a certain point, he's got to have some Um, go-tos. We'll see. Again, this maybe potentially got a bit dramatic here because (laughs) George, George didn't play a bad match in this. He had his chances, particularly in the first set, he could have flipped this one. um, And we could be talking on the other side where he wins this match and looks really good. Except remember what I was talking about last match where, you know, Mm -hmm. it it matters for when we were talking about Plushkova, who it matters for this match mattered for Borna George. This was a one where if he could get this under his belt, I think he's feeling a lot better about his U S open chances. Whereas right now he's probably got even more lack of confidence. See, I, I wouldn't uh, – I, so I agree with part A of that point. Had he won it, that would have been a huge confidence boost. I'm going to disagree with part B simply because the level was there. The way he competed was there. It just is about smarter choices on the court. So I think, if anything, given his lack of confidence, right, he's got to be – well, at least I played well. At least I put myself in a position to win. I just couldn't get over the finish line. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, look, there's always positives to take from a match, or at least hopefully there's always something positive you can take a match. But um, given, I think, what he needs as a player right now, a win like this is kind of what he needs. No, completely agree with you there. It would have been great for him, but still a great win for David Goffin. And there were a lot of other really good matches throughout the day. Let's start on the men's side. We'll stick there, and let's just quickly go through the three setters first. Uh, We mentioned the Dan Evans three-set win. Alias Bedene, a uh, three-set win, 6-4, 6-7, 6-love over Christian Guerin. That was 
maybe the weirdest match I saw all day. Christian Guerin would go from one point looking like, you know, Stan Wawrinka to the next point looking like a poor man's Max Rothman. And so it was just, it was a weird one, folks, to say the least. We also had Emil Rusevori, uh, you know, who's been one of the top players on the Challenger circuit throughout the 2020 season. When, uh, you know, the young Estonian player uh, looking really good early in the year. And he's continued that level here into the Western Southern. He qualifies then. He knocks off a fellow qualifier of a really talented young American, Sebastian Corda, who we, of course, have had on our Cracked Interviews com, uh, podcast, Rusevori, uh, uh, excuse me, a 7-6-4-6-7-5 win over Corda. I thought Corda moved really well in that one, but just it wasn't aggressive enough. For someone who's 6'5", 6'6", he's got to be playing a little bit closer to the baseline, but still physically was really impressed by what I saw from Corda. The other three-set match, John Mill. 467676 over uh 466476 excuse me over Adrian Manorino in a match that looked exactly like you expected it to uh your thoughts on those three sets results Jamie I mean there's a lot to there's a lot you can uncover here I mean Millman <laughs> you know you know what you're going to get with that yeah. right you knew that one was going to be a grind that oh, especially sure. you're looking at that one you're like god you're, you don't want to put any money down on that one because you know it could go either way and you knew it was going to be a grind um sebastian corda obviously unfortunate for him because he had that match what looked like in the bag of course um ended up still being a really really good match overall but you know i think was he up what was it five two in the third yeah he, uh, he was yeah. up a break yeah exactly and so it's like yeah you wish he could have closed that one out um christian garen i think is a very interesting one you and i talked about this yesterday because I, I can't remember if it was on the pot or offline it was like yeah we really like to see christian garen on a hard court what he can do loses a deciding set six zero. um so it's not, yeah, not he the also, best for him. Worth saying he looked dead physically. True. I mean, he that match look, was physical. Yeah. And I'm, that's not an excuse, right? Like, you're going to be playing in these same conditions three out of five sets next week, Christian. Like, chop, chop, my friend. Um, yeah. But he was he was just dead physically. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And I mean, yeah, so they were all really interesting matches. You look at some of the other results, again, just to fly through them on the men's side. Uh, we mentioned the Gofen over Chorch, Tsitsipas comfortable win over Kevin Anderson one and yeah. three although I think physically Kevin Anderson was really hurting from the day before where he obviously battled uh Kyle Edmonds you look across the way you know Schwartzman straight sets over Rude Hatchin who I'm you know Rude I'm just as interested in as uh Christian Guerin in terms of what they can do on a hard court Hatchinov over Bublik Dimitrov over Umber uh Fuchevich over uh who did Fuchevich not off he knocked off Gambos Isner over Hercots Dimit uh, I said Dimitrov over Umber, excuse me. I'm, I'm, I swear, folks, I'm 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 keeping it together here. We're down the home stretch, though. Uh, Gasquet over Wolf in straight sets. Giron over Mackey, and then Sandgren straight set winner over Sinego. Any of those results surprise you? Uh, so let's really quickly talk about JJ Wolf and Gasquet because did did you watch most of this match? So I watched it. I, I, we won't, I, mean, I don't want give to me your you, take first. No, no, give me your take first, and then I'll respond. Yeah, and, and I will preface this by saying I don't want to make this a full match breakdown because we already did four of those. But I wanted <laughs> to spend a couple minutes here because, I mean, look, here at Crack Dragons, obviously we're going to be rooting for a guy like J.J. Wolf, but I, I just left the match feeling frustrated um, because I feel like there were opportunities. Look, it's not like Gasquet blew him off the court. He was in this match. Um, there were just so many missed shots. I feel like he was just missing shots left and right, especially off of the second, you know, the second serve return in particular. He was just missing a ton, you know, balls where you feel like he could get into points and just simply didn't. Um, just too much missing. And Gasquet, yes, he did some he did some things really well. Um, he was effective on his first serve, and that's great. I mean, both of them were effective on their first serve, honestly. It's Gasquet just put a few more into the court. But realistically for me, I felt like every point I was watching JJ just miss a return or, or miss a ground stroke. And, and so that eventually was just kind of a frustrating feeling. Yeah, I... Look, I mean, you look at the match, you look at the result, you look at, you know, the stats that were put up for Gasquet, and I know we're not doing a full breakdown, but, you know, 55% of his first serves, that's not great, but he won 77% of those points, 64% of his second serve points for JJ, only made 47% of his first serves, you know, uh, 12 of 31 on second serve points. One, he just, he struggled with the first ball. He struggled to get into rallies. Now, you do ask yourself if this match was actually played in Cincinnati in front of a home crowd, do the 
those numbers pop up a little bit for JJ? Do the nerves of playing your first ATP match, are they subsided by the fact that you're playing in front of a home crowd? The honest answer is maybe they would have been. Uh, but yeah, it just, it, it wasn't a clean performance for JJ. It wasn't his best tennis at all. Gasquet did a great job of keeping him off balance, but I just thought that, you know, for, for it was his first ATP match was really my takeaway, and it looked yeah. the part. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Yeah, so I agree. Not a full breakdown, but certainly you you know would have loved to see JJ keep rocking and rolling. And if you're going to have a mullet like that, you better play well. And so you exactly. know, for him to make you know qualify for his first Masters event, qualify for his first you know ATP 250 or up level match, that's still a big jump in JJ Wolf's career. So sure. shout out to him for getting through qualies. But Richard Gasquet just too good today. Those were the men's results. Again, we're going to quickly run through the women's. We talked about the two upsets, some other uh, you know notable results on the day. Own Jabour got everything she could ask for and more from young Canadian superstar Layla Fernandez, who just continues to look so good this year. But in the end, Jabour, just steady veteran presence, made that extra ball, made the match as physical as possible. 06-6463, she takes that decision over Fernandez. That was a big three-set win. Laura Siegemund upsets Marketa Van Drusova, the 10 seed, 6-3-6-7-6-4 in three sets. Zivana Reva keeps rocking and rolling. one 6 6 3 6 one over Lynette. And then you all know my, uh, you know, my fandom for CC Bellis. It's never going to end, folks. CC Bellis getting a win, six two three six seven six over Doden. Your thoughts on those three set results? So the first one we got to start with Fernandez because you know I'll give you some credit. Somebody that you have you have really been wanting to keep an eye on, especially um, coming back to the tour. And so you see that I have to flip the question on you here. What did you think when you saw the six zero first set? I, if you've watched Own Jabour a lot this year, and I have, uh, you know, we, I got to see her in Lexington as well. She was obviously quarterfinalist at the Australian Open, highest ranked Arab women in history uh, in the WTA singles rankings. And yet that first set is just everything you expect from her. She's going for these drop shots. She's standing out there like, wait, what is this little 17-year-old doing to me? Like, how is she working me around the court like this? What's going on? You could literally see in her face her just this exasperation like wait what like did did I just drop you know it was a three set match in under two hours like that that first set it just happened so quickly and then I think it woke Jabour up I actually thought you know for Fernandez way to jump on her like that's the sort of the way Layla Fernandez competes she has her routines and you know I'm stealing this quote from Sandy Middleman another coach a high level coach I got to hang out with on the tennis one app Uh, Layla Fernandez is going to be successful she is you know barring injury she's going to become the best version of herself. And that 6-0 set is reflective of that because she plays high percentage. She comes out with a vengeance and she comes out with her foot on the gas. And just that's yeah. every little check mark you want for a young player. Even if they don't win a match, she knocked off all the boxes. Yep. No, I think that's fair. That's, honestly, that match right there was the most interesting one because yeah. for me anyway in the three sets because it wasn't – it didn't feel like a three-set match. It felt very separate. It felt like there was a first set and then there was a second match almost mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh, Jabor kind of got, you know, wrangled control of the match. I was like, okay, we're back here. We need to sort of set the tone a little bit different. So, and look, sometimes a blowout first set can do that more so than, you know, a tight first set, right? Because when it's a blowout first set, you know, there needs to be a huge attitude change and it's, it really feels like a reset. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I got blown out in a first set and that <laughs> is a lot more jarring and you're like, okay, well, we're going to have to start pushing even more in my case. <laughs> <laughs> like we're sending them to the moon um, with these moon balls. But no, uh, th- that one was the only one that I at least wanted your opinion on just because I know uh, how fond you've been of Fernandez as of late. Yeah, and, and again, even in losses right now for Layla Fernandez, how do you compete? And she competed exceptionally. And sure. so, uh, yeah. yeah, so big win for her. You know, the difference between Jabour and Kenan, Jabour was able to wake up before being down 6 one 5 2. Yeah, uh, that's exactly. the biggest difference in that one. I agree. And look, you also know, you mentioned my fondness for Fernandez. I love the 25 and unders. I keep saying how many talents 
talented players there are right now in the WTA. Well, Jill Teichman continues her success, 3-3 three and three over Danielle Collins. Marie Buzkova, who I was ready to declare my U.S. Open favorite last week, you know, 1-5 over Kalinskaya. That was a really good win for her. Uh, Annette Conteve, 3-1 over Kazakina. Elise Mertens, 0-2 over Pedersen. Uh, really good wins from that group. And then you had Roos as well, a straight set winner. You had Flipkins, a straight set winner. Christina McHale knocking off young Iga Sviatek, 6-2-6-4. And then to me, another really, no- oh, Caroline Garcia continuing to, you know, make things miserable for Sloan Stevens. She knocks her off 3-6. and six. And then for me, really good win between two of the hottest players right now on the WTA Tour. Jess Pegula, 7-6-6-4 over Jennifer Brady. For Pegula, you know, I, I just want to clarify, this is not a bad loss. This is not the Brady, you know, oh, it's the hangover effect. That win in Lexington was a fluke. No, it wasn't. Jessica Pegula is just playing that well right now. She was, again, her and Kennan, clearly the top two players during the World Team Tennis season, and Pegula showing that fact right now. She just continues to play well, continues to ride that momentum. I'm telling you, folks, if the draw breaks right, she's going to make a second week of the U.S. Open. You heard it here first. All right. You heard it here first. Well, with that in mind, she's got a really fun matchup today. She is taking on Amanda Anisimova. That's going to be a great match. Uh, one of the plethora of fun matches we have here on day three of this main draw action of the Western and Southern. Jamie, let's end today's podcast here. Give me the matches you're going to be watching most closely. Well, first of all, I'll just comment the match you just mentioned, Pagula and uh, Anisimova. Already on court, Pagula up a break in the first, so serving 4-3 at the moment. So that one would be absolutely one to watch. Um, I think there's a lot of them. One that I definitely want to highlight, Shapovalov and Struff, um, mainly because it was so funny how many times in 2019 did we talk about that matchup. Like, Struff yeah. had his number in 2019. Um, and so maybe this will flip the script. Shapovalov looked really good. But Struff also is coming off of a really good first win as well. So both of those hard hitting, going to be a lot of fast points. But, um, you know, I think that one is absolutely an interesting one. Another one for me, Opelka and Schwartzman, you know, for a lot of reasons, that one I find funny. Uh, but just the matchup, <laughs> like that stylistic clash is going to be really interesting. And, um, you know, while I think really highly of Diego Schwartzman, if Opelka is on today, I don't think Schwartzman got a chance. Um, I think Opelka's just hitting too big. He's going to get too many free points off the serve. And Schwartzman, yes, he's a great returner and finds ways to break. But if Opelka's serving too well, it's, it's just lights out. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think on the women's side, one thing I'm really, this is just a little thing, but Sophia Kennan playing with Vika Azarenka in doubles, really like that decision from Kennan. Just play more matches, get match yeah. tough. So that's just from an intrigue perspective. I'm really happy to see that. Yeah, you mentioned Pagula Nisimova has my attention. Maria Sakari, how is she going to be able to follow up that golf win? She's going to get to do a lot of dictating against Putin Seva. Is she going to be able to follow that up? That's interesting to me. Conteve Teichman, you can take my 20 Bucks. I'll be watching that match. Yastremska Para. I'll be watching that one. Key Jabour, Bellis Sabalenka. It's a freaking Buskova Kavitova. It's a loaded day on the women's side. On the men's side, you know, the match I would say I'm watching most closely, obviously, my love for both Andy Murray and Alex Zverev yeah. goes without saying. At I this left point, that one right? for you. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. So it goes without saying. I'm not even going to get into that one. But I will say the match I am sneaky most excited about is not Pablo Carina to Karen Hatchinov, although certainly that deserves some uh, love, but a match that's already underway right now. Tennis Sandgren, who in my opinion was one of the three best players during the exhibition period, uh, he's going to take on Felix Ogier Aliasim today, and you know, for young Felix, who made two finals at the ATP level, it's a really tough matchup to ask. Hey, second match back, you're playing a guy who's just not going to miss a ball in Tennis Sandgren. I'm all in on that one. I think that's going to be really fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's a lot and, of good tennis, so we better we better get off the pod and turn on the TV. Exactly. <laughs> I'm ready to go watch. Now, I will say for those of you who want to hear more about our picks, you want to hear more of a breakdown on the spread of matches happening on day three, I will highly recommend you go listen to the ace of the day I did with Max Rothman. Not only did we lay out a couple of cases for some fun wagers, but uh, we also actually got in on the action ourselves. That's the problem. Whenever I involve Rothman, it means I'm actually going to end up spending some money because I call it the Rothman effect. 
fact. And by the way, there's no person you want to go on a vacation with more than Max Rothman. I promise you. I mean, save up your shekels, folks, before you do. But I promise you, you're going to have a good time. Nevertheless, it's always a good time to have Rothman on the show. So if you want to hear more about our day three previews, go check that out. I always have to give a shout out to our friends at Midwest Sports. I highly encourage you to go get a part of their Western and Southern Open giveaway. Why not give yourself a chance to win some free gear as well as a chance to win free four tickets to the 2021 Western and Southern Open. Get yourself some aero bars as well. Just, you know, when you're at that 2021 Western Southern Open, you want to look good. What if you and one of your favorite players lock eyes and that's your moment and they say, man, that guy looks slim and or that gal looks slim and you can say, well, it's because of the aero bars I've been eating. I keep myself in really good shape. So you can do that by going to AeroBar using our promo code CRACKED15. And of course, you can keep up with all the action. Get yourself ready for these three weeks in New York by following all of our content, which you can find on our website, CrackedRackets.com. This podcast, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews and Inside Out Podcast. Of course, our YouTube channel as well. All of that content available. We're rocking and rolling here at Cracked Rackets. The reason we are able to, of course, because of the incredible work of our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westhoff, who have a of an editing job as always. But with that in mind, Jamie, any final thoughts as we head into day three? Or are you ready to go watch some tennis? Let's go watch some tennis. Uh, right. Raonic is now up a break over Evans, by the way. Oh, so my. we got we to gotta go. Can I just say, I told Rothman, he's like, I really like Evans. I was like, dude, the Raonic serve to the Evans backhand, it's just a nightmare. Yeah, it's like, trouble. It, yeah, yeah it's, it, trouble. it's just an absolute nightmare. And so thankfully, I talked him out of that one. Nevertheless, with that in mind, for my wonderful co-host James Foster McDonald, our super producers, Max Fliegner and Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar, and all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Jamie, what do we tell the people? That's a break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.